Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Taryn Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Harry's. Harry's is a shaving company that will send you razors right to your door. No matter what you're looking for, Harry's has you covered. And this holiday season, Harry's is offering custom and limited edition shaving sets that make the perfect gift. They come with all of the stuff that you would expect. The high-quality, German-engineered five-blade cartridges uh, that provide close, comfortable shave. The foaming shave gel. The uh, all, all, of, all of the good stuff that you'd expect from a Harry's order. With the addition of these personalized engravings. The special, limited edition winter chrome and emerald green handles you gotta you gotta show off just how special your razor is in the in the realm even it's even more spe- it's it's regularly special because it's harry's but then it's extra limited edition special because it's got a, a cool uh color name like it's like uh it's like you know you get you get pokemon and it's like pokemon red but this is like Pokemon Fire Red. It's like Winter Chrome, Emerald Green, Extra Special. So no matter what you're looking for, Harry's has you covered. Sets come ready to gift in beautifully designed gift boxes. They start at just $10. They even have some great stocking stuffers. Uh, you can get something for yourself. Uh, you can get whatever you want. So as a special offer for listeners of my podcast, I've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off your order when you go to harrys.com slash this offer is only available for the holidays. You're running out of time if you're not uh, up on this. We've got, uh, what, it's, to, uh, to this podcast is going to be released on Tuesday the 9, 10, 11, 12? I think it's the 12th. I might leave that in because that's, I'm bad at dates. Uh, this podcast is probably coming out on the 12th which is like december 12th that's the you know that's that's basically december's half over already but you got these holidays they only last so long so uh you got to make sure you get in on this stuff you got to make sure you're getting your gifts so make sure this holiday you give harry's you give handsome get your holiday shopping done early take advantage of free shipping to get your limited edition holiday shave set while supplies last go to harrys.com slash Right now, that's harrys.com slash Taryn. First take, by the way. Got shave set. Shave set. I've got, I've got, like, got it down now. You can't even, you can't even fault me on it. I, I don't go save shit anymore. And I'm, well, now I just messed myself up, but we'll see. Anyway, today's podcast is uh, a, a good one. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I, I got Zeke Smith from Survivor at Millennials vs. Gen X and game changers on to talk to me about all kinds of things um regarding his life so i am looking forward to getting this out and having everyone listen i feel like this is a very very good podcast so uh, i hope everyone feels the same and uh i hope you enjoy this podcast and i i hope you haven't stopped listening because i've been rambling too much uh let's go Of his social life. It's the Taryn Show. The Taryn Show. Don't ask if he's single, you already know. Cause it's the Taryn Show. A simple name for a simple guy with a simple face. It's the Taryn Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Taryn Show. 
I've got a great episode for you today. I, uh, I reached out to this guy. I've been looking forward to talking to him. Uh, I needed I needed some more survivor people. I feel like we've been uh, we've been low on survivor people, and uh, this, is, this is a perfect survivor person to get. Uh, I've got Zeke with me here. How are you doing, Zeke? I'm good. I'm good. I don't know if you'd call me a survivor person. Am I? <laughs> I mean, you were on Survivor a couple of times. I suppose I was on Survivor. I guess that happened. Maybe. <laughs> it sort of just feels like a fever dream at this point. I'm like, Christ, did that all really happen? I suppose it did. Yeah, well, you you did it pretty quickly in succession. Like, uh, you were on, and then you were on again, and then... Oh, yeah, done. no, it was a big, like, 18-month punch in the gut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, for anyone that, for whatever reason, does not know, uh, Zeke Smith uh, played on uh, Survivor uh, Millennials, Millennials vs. Gen, Gen X, X. Yep. and then uh, on Game Changers, uh, and uh, you made it pretty far both times. Yeah, yeah. I Well, I was in a lot of episodes both times, but sort of, <laughs> I think I finished in uh, ninth place and then 10th place, so I always was about like a middle-of-the-pack finisher. It just they yeah. they they there are like six people make the finale, so you all like you know mm-hmm. it's it it, it it sort of all warps you know how well you did because people are always like yeah I was like always oh, on Survivor so like how well did you do I'm like well both times I was in almost all of the episodes <laughs> I'm like I, I you know what I went I I, I made it it's thirty nine days and I made it thirty three days and twenty nine days so. Yeah, it's TV you, show wise, TV yeah. show wise, you did pretty well. Game wise, ah, middle of the pack. It was fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and but you were also uh, you're also a fan of of RHAP, right? I'm uh, a before you even played. fan of RHAP. Uh, yeah, like I don't know, I, I I might even predate you in in when I discovered <laughs> RHAP. I mean, I don't I don't presume to speak as to when you uh, when discovered RHAP, but yeah, so I started watching Survivor in the summer of 2010 which was right when uh heroes versus villains ended and i did this epic binge watch of like 20 seasons of survivor and i think so i so i have met thousands and thousands of survivor fans over the past couple of years and one thing that is true about all survivor fans is that you share survivor with someone very very few people watch survivor in a vacuum but i was like alone and didn't have anyone to share survivor with so i found rhap and i think for many rhap fans this community and this podcast is who you share survivor with. So, yeah, yeah yeah for sure i i mean that's that's something i i hear a lot and it, it was the case for me as well where like uh you know i i started watching um like with my mom but i didn't really have any friends that watched survivor or big brother and uh and rhap was definitely the outlet which was like uh, oh wow there there are other people out there and then uh you know it all it all spirals from there yeah yeah i mean i i never got as far as having a podcast on rhap but i <laughs> I, I i have contributed to the uh the, the community in other ways <laughs> yeah well how did that happen well i uh i think Rob was expanding the empire because it initially was just the podcast with him and Nicole. And then I think the website was happening and he was doing more and more podcasts and was just said, if anyone has anything you want to say, like holler at me. Um, And it was during survivor uh, one world. And I really did not like Colton. And I sent Rob (laughs) (laughs) and like, you know, a blog post about why, like I didn't like Colton, which is something I would never do. 
now and feel kind of terrible that I did at the time. I mean, I don't think I feel any differently than I did at the time. I just don't know that I would make my feelings public. Um, yeah, and then I wrote uh, I wrote a couple of things about Celebrity Apprentice because uh, I was watching The Real Housewives of New Jersey at the time, and there were a couple of Real Housewives on the show, and people needed like background about who they are and what their deal was. So yeah, very cool. Because I, I well, I, I remember um, I met you in New York um, during during Game Changer or no, sorry, during Millennials vs Gen X, um, and uh, it, it was the first time I had ever met a survivor or big brother player when and and you came up to me and you're like taryn like i i'm a big fan i listen to you and i was yeah. like well you're on tv right now that doesn't make any sense to me yeah but i was an rhap nerd before i was on tv <laughs> i know right it was very cool um so uh so how did that how did this all get started how did you get into survivor um also it was an interesting story so i uh, i got super depressed in college fun way to start a story i know um and i had to i needed to i needed to to step away i needed to take some time off and i i was going to be living so i i kind of like went back to my mom's house to like you know chill out for a bit and then i was going to go live in new york city and have an internship and reestablish my independence and all of these things and i was going to be living with my brother and my brother and i hate each other and we have always hate each other and we do not get along so in an effort to make our living situation a bit more pleasant, I said, what's something I can watch so that we'll have something to talk about so we just don't yell at each other all the time? And he said, well, I, I really like Survivor. And I said, that show's still on. And was like, oh, God. <laughs> uh, but I, I started watching. And he said, start with Cook Islands. Uh, and I did. And I still remember the first time I watched Cook Islands. And I was just like, I was just riveted. There was a pirate ship rocking its way through the South Pacific. I, I wrote about this, I think. Um, and I, I was just, I was drawn in and I loved it. And I watched 13 through 20 uh, and, you know, finished with this big Russell Hance finale. And I actually remember thinking at the time, oh my God, he played two seasons back to back. I wonder what it's like to go from playing one season <laughs> of Survivor to another. I found out. Uh <laughs> And ever since then, I have been a big Survivor fan. I mean, I've sort of ebbed and flowed with Survivor. Uh, I would get frustrated with the show during those you know seasons in the mid-20s that really kind of sucked. And I have struggled sometimes when I feel like the sexism in the casting and in the gameplay and uh, not liking the way it was going. And so I actually stopped watching Survivor for a while until I played... Uh, now this infamous game of Survivor Brooklyn, uh, where I met a legendary RHAP community member, Alice Forsten Hausler. Um, also met Andrea Belke. <laughs> um, and I was just playing to go have fun. And Alex was telling me all about Tony and Kageyan and how I needed to get back into Survivor. And I did. Um, and I got like back into hardcore. And Alex was kind of played my Survivor buddy. And yeah, I ended up getting really excited about Survivor and, uh, you know, applied and the rest is history. <laughs> Man, t t I feel like Tony was just like such a great, like just a monumental event in Survivor history. You know, people talk about like Russell Hance bringing in fans again, but I feel like Tony is like uh, also also up there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Tony saved Survivor. I don't know if Survivor goes past 30 without Tony. 
because Tony reinvigorated, I think, fans. And I think what's, you know, Russell Hans played the way he played and lost twice. And so everyone stopped playing aggressively because that, if it was like, well, if you play aggressively, you're not going to win. But because Tony won, because the way he played was rewarded, I think it sparked what I know people roll their eyes and you can argue if it's real or if it's not, but what we like are deeming this like evolution in survivor where people make big moves and try to play a bit more forcefully and, you know, say what you will about it being good gameplay. It certainly makes good television. And I think that's like the number one reason why 95% of survivor play or survivor fans, you know, watch the show is that it's fun to watch. Yeah. Well, could you, could you ever imagine yourself having like going on TV? Like when you applied for survivor, did you, was that something that entered your mind? Like, I like, not only am I going to play this game, but I'm going to be on TV. People are going to be like watching me. Like that's, that's like a whole other step. Uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, I was tr- I, I, very, very much concerned about the being on television part because I, 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 you know, I'm someone who I've never really, I'm not since I was a kid, at least haven't had acting ambitions, but a lot of my life in New York, uh, was centered around doing comedy. I, um, was an improviser. I, I wrote stuff. I made comedy videos. I mean, my ultimate goal and ambition is to be a television writer. And I knew that being on Survivor had the potential to launch me. I don't know that I was like super, I thought it. I never imagined it would have the impact that it, it would and it would launch me in the way that it did. But I knew that being on television would be part of sort of my my permanent record as far as me as a personality and a person with a point of view would go. Um, and, you know, yeah, you don't want to look stupid. You know, you're going to have a social media presence. I think for me, there was also this added concern of how does this part of my life that I'm not crazy about being, you know, super public, how does that play in? Um so I, I think because my life also revolves around me wanting to contribute to television, I thought a lot about how the television of Survivor was made and I think very much informed a lot of my preparation and how I tried to conduct myself out there. Yeah, you wanted to take like the, the Cochrane path of uh I mean I think that was the TV, I think right? that was the pipe dream. But yeah. yeah. You know, it was also about I think more than anything. I found Survivor at this real low point in my life when I was very depressed and like couldn't get out of bed and was wondering, you know, what what did my future hold? I I was struggling in school, struggling in life for the first time and saw all my friends around me succeeding and I I could barely muster the strength to get out of bed and I watched Survivor and I thought, wow, this is the hardest thing I could imagine doing like I'll never be strong enough or uh, athletic enough or socially adept enough to do this thing. But that sort of like inspired me. It spoke to me in a particular way. Uh, and it was always living in the back of my mind as I, I recovered and I progressed and I started to have a life and a career um, and, and get back on my feet. And I think for me, there was an element of I, I need to go do this thing. I can do this thing. I can be good at this thing. I have to go after this dream because if I can go after this dream, I can go after anything. And if I can get through it, it's proof that I'm not the struggling, failing, sad kid anymore. It's proof that I've recovered and now like the world is my oyster. Uh, so it was like, I don't know. I, Survivor was a lot of things for me. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, no, I, I feel like that's kind of a common thread with with a lot of the interviews I've done with Big Brother players, Survivor players, where like their decision to go on the show is usually formed at, at around or because of some kind of crossroads that they face, and they feel like um, like this this is an opportunity to either to prove myself or to um, you know, to to get out of a situation or improve my situation. Um, but I, I don't know if it's like the people that they tend to cast or the ones that like feel like uh, like there's something else there that they need this experience. Or if it's just that a lot of people that apply feel that uh, feel that too. But um, I, th- I think it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, it's, well, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think most people who are clicking along in life for whom everything is is perfect, they're where they are with their jobs and their relationships. If they, if you gotta, you don't throw yourself into a hyper extreme situation unless there's something unique, unless there's something you're missing and and seek to discover. I think it could also be the people who tend to do well maybe feel the pressure and feel the stakes a little higher than those who don't need to do well. You know. Yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, I get like most of the people I'm talking to are probably the ones that are a little more like heavily uh, involved and have more stakes in this community anyway. Like uh, if I'm talking to JP, we're probably not going to have the same conversation. Right. Because I think that was also that's also something I wanted too. was as I, I, I wanted to be well regarded in specifically the RHAP community in the you know, the, the fan world, though now I don't like I, I don't watch Survivor anymore. Uh, it, yeah. I think that's the crazy thing is it is out of your love and out of your fandom that you go play. And then after you get through, I think, the tumult of being on television and hearing what everyone has to say about you and not liking a lot of it, uh, then, you know, I, I, I guess put another way, I had this dream, but then I lived the dream. I expended the dream and now it's over. And now I've got to kind of move on. I think in order to move on mm-hmm. and find the next dream and find the next thing that inspires me, I've had to put Survivor to to bed a little bit and, and distance myself from, uh, yeah, this whole world, which used to be such an important part of my life. So, so do you feel like that? Do you feel like the experience did what you were looking? for it to do like do you feel like like you talked about like you know wanting to like it was this experience it was going to be very difficult and you wanted to like prove to yourself in in many ways that you could get through it and and, and accomplish it like did it did it do what you wanted it to do uh yeah and then so much more because (laughs) yeah right because like look i you know i played over the course of like three months i played i for I was on an island starving and living with insane people who are cast on reality shows for 62 days. I Here's how I like to illustrate my time on Survivor. So the first time I had to go number two, I, I remember it was like five or six days in and I was really not looking forward to it. And I, I first started to walk down and the camera people followed me and I was like, no, no, no. And then that spooked me. And I, it was so timid and so hard to like drop a deuce the first time. And then I think I remember the last time I dropped a deuce on Survivor. Uh, I think it was the day I got voted out of Game Changers. And I remember Ty was on the beach. And I kept yelling at Ty to get off the beach. And Ty wouldn't get off the beach. And so I just marched down and uh, dug a hole. I wasn't an aqua dumper. I dug a hole. And I dropped my (laughs) pants and I squatted down. And I looked Ty right in the eyes. And took a shit in front of Ty. (laughs) Like, so, it, 
Uh, it's a power the, move. Right. Um, but no, because I, you know, I, I left Survivor with another task. Like, you know, the outing and everything that happened. Um, and I started having, like, you know, conversations, like, two days after I got voted out with, with Probst and Matt Van Wagenen, who's the other executive producer, about what we were going to do and how we were going to handle it. And they were like, like gear up, buddy. Uh, and I, 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 ta- I, I tell the story about looking at Ty in the eyes and pooping to kind of illustrate how destroyed I was as a human being by the time I got home. Uh, like, I, those, like, those last 11 days I played Survivor, like, I was very broken as a person and, like, really just trying to hold it together so I didn't have some sort of, like, epic emotional meltdown on national television. And I kind of had a small one, but it could have been much worse. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I had to, like, pick the pieces back uh put the pieces back together because one of my concerns was like i have a history of depression and if we don't like keep this tight like i do not want to spiral out and be depressed and in bed again um because i'm going to have this moment and i would really like to rise to this challenge uh i because i'm i'm you know i've got a couple of months to kind of figure out how i'm going to become one of the most visible like trans men in the country uh which Mm. is what i am now i and I think that those nine months of, of learning what it was like to become someone who is in the public eye, who to deal with, you know, how do you deal with the, what people are saying about you on social media or on the internet or on podcasts? And uh, I think trying to deal with becoming someone who gets recognized in the grocery store uh, and figure out how to handle all that up here while also getting ready for this other thing that's going to happen. Uh, was very uh was very hard and i am very lucky that i have an awesome group of friends who rallied around me and were there for me uh and and put up with me and as like you know crazy uh as i was when i got home um yeah and i think that is i think that's sort of the the bigger thing that i took from survivor um was to kind of trust in my own capacity but also to be very thankful uh, and very proud of the friends that I have in my life. Because I'm not always, I'm not a guy who's always had a lot of friends. Uh, believe it or not, was not super cool in high school in Oklahoma City. <laughs> uh, they, they really did not buy what I was selling. Um, and I was also kind of a terror in college too. I was that social justice warrior asshole who objected to everything and picked on everyone's language. And I was, I was that guy. I'm not that guy anymore. Thank heavens. Uh, but, you know, I've not always been one to endear others to be close to me. And that I, you know, it, it, it took me close to 30 years to have good friends, but now I have the best friends. And if Survivor taught me that, then eh, it was worth it. Yeah, very cool. Uh, I imagine it would be difficult to escape this news, but would, do you mind just uh, quickly like recounting like y- your experience with the the outing for anybody that may not know what you're talking about? Oh, right. Okay. Well, so uh, I guess we start with uh, I I am I am transgender. That is a thing about me. I uh, it is a thing that other people think is interesting, but I don't necessarily think is that interesting. So it was not something I wanted to talk about when I went on Survivor. Um, if it arose, I was happy to discuss it, but I was not going to lead with it. Largely because I'm this big Survivor fan and hope to be known as this as, as Zeke the Survivor player and not, oh, that trans Survivor player. 
Uh, so I get through all millennials Gen X. It's not a thing. It's not a problem. If anyone knew about it, no one said anything. And then we get uh, about halfway through Game Changers to the vote right before the merge. And uh, another player uh, makes this uh, uh, information public at a tribal at tribal council and does so in sort of a nefarious way and, uh, and uses language of deception, which is... Um, I think historically pretty problematic when talking about trans people. It's often used as a justification for for violence. Um, but yes, I am I'm outed at this insane tribal council. And uh, when that episode aired, it it became global news. Like the, the 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 guy who was outed on Survivor became a global news story. It was like the thing people talked about for a couple of days. Um, and we, you know, it was filmed nine months you know, prior to being aired, and I worked with Survivor and GLAAD, which is an organization which deals with LGBTQ representation in the media, to I think, put together a response and, and to prepare me to handle the press and the media and the attention which would, you know, come in the wake of this episode airing. Though we were prepared for it and we had a plan, but nobody knew it was going to be as big as it was. But... <laughs> It, it 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 exceeded all of our expectations. Yeah, it, I mean, it was it was it was it was such an impactful moment to watch. I think like the way that it that it happened, like it's it was very easy to convey uh, so much like emotion in one like sitting that it was very digestible to a mainstream sort of like even if you didn't watch Survivor. Yeah, um, it's a it's a very long tribal council. It's like a fifteen minute long tribal council, um, but it. It does. It's a very compact story. I think you have like the moment in which like the the bomb drops and no one quite knows what to make of it. Uh, and then I I sort of am super shell shocked. But uh, I think what's so fantastic about it is that everyone around me rises up immediately to my defense. So like I'm I'm left speechless. But they they defend me and they I think rebuff the accusations of deception and are able to articulate why what happened was wrong, then I, I sort of come back and I'm able to put the pieces together and explain my point of view. Um, and then I think kind of my favorite moment is when Sarah, who is another player who is a conservative Christian cop from Iowa, who's been a little quiet throughout, kind of says, you know, I Zeke is who I have known him as and he has you know, changed my perceptions on LGBT people. And I... It's really special and really beautiful. And, uh, you know, I was really happy that I could uh, advocate to give that woman a million dollars at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, like, like as you were talking about before, you know, I've talked to a lot of people um, now uh, about sort of transitioning from being somebody that nobody pays attention to, to going on a show and then having all kinds of attention and, and ne whether it's negative attention or positive attention, it still can be a lot to deal with. Uh, but you had this uh, as, as a whole other layer on top of that. Like it, what was that experience? Oh God, it was tough. And it really kind of rocked. Um, it was tough, but it was also great um, because I think the, the challenge and it's one I'm still sort of grappling with is before I was on survivor, I was this like dirty, irreverent, comedy asshole who did shows in moldy basements in New York City and made videos with his friends. Like, I had this whole, like, library of comedy videos I'd made that CBS made me take down before I left for Fiji 
because it was not in keeping with like the survivor brand. Um, oh my. And I kind of hoped to go on Survivor and be this goofy villain. Like, I, I, I was not hoping to be super heroic, but, like, I got this... I mean, I have my moments where I'm a jerk, but I kind of came out of Survivor with this, like, good guy, role model, responsible, inspiring fella. And it, it really kind of fucked with my own understanding of myself. Because I'm like, but I'm, I'm the asshole comedian. I'm not, I'm not this guy. Uh, and so, but I was like, I guess, I guess I'm this person now. And I guess I'm going to go mentor kids and like raise money for organizations. And I, 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 I kind of had to be that guy for a while. And then I was like, well, I guess I just am this person now, but I, I did not like it. And it made me feel really weird. It made me feel really stuck creatively. Um, and I think I've had to kind of understand that. Like the guy who goes and speaks to colleges and companies about what happened, uh, and the guy who you know did all this press and wrote these essays, he's he's a version of me, and he's true, and what he says is real, but he's kind of a character, um, and he's just part of me. And now I think that all the the survivor storm has blown over, getting a chance to be a bit more of an asshole comedian again, to be a bit more a bit more of myself. Um, it was really weird. Survivor kind of like sent me on this like existential, existential tailspin. Like, who am I? What do I stand for? What do I want to say to the world? Which is just so, I don't know, silly. Um, but look, you know, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's weird how the attention manifests itself because I do meet a lot of Survivor fans. I, you know, I, I'm not wearing one right now. I think it's underneath my, my, my sweater. Um, but I, I wear the goofy shirts. Uh, I've got the big hair and the mustache. And people see me and come say hi uh, quite often. And I, I love meeting Survivor fans and taking pictures and getting to learn about them. And it's really cool because whenever I meet a Survivor fan, they always, and I think intentionally, make a point of being like, I love the way you played or I love whatever about you. But then occasionally I'll run into people who only know me as the guy who got outed on Survivor, which will manifest itself in weird ways. Like I, I was hooking up with a dude in New York and I forget what we said. What I, what I said, we, ha- we weren't hooking up yet. We were still fully clothed. And he goes, oh my God, are you the guy who got outed on Survivor? And, he ga- and I go, yes. And he gasps and he covers his mouth and he like, steps backwards and hits a table and knocks over a vase of flowers. And I was like, I don't want to have sex with you now. That was a really weird thing to do. But it was kind of cool. So actually, so I just moved to LA in July. And the the first day I moved to LA, I was getting a salad. I was actually with, with Hannah Shapiro. And a, a fan was like, oh, Zeke and Hannah, I'm a big Survivor fan. And we're like, great, I took a picture. And there was a guy sitting at the end of the table who came over and handed me his card. He says, I'm a costume designer. My name's Christopher. I live in the neighborhood. If you're new, let me like take you to coffee and show you around. It's like, okay. Um, so I, I Googled him and I looked him up and he was legit. Like he was a costume designer on Ray Donovan. So we had coffee right up the street from me and we were talking and it was clear he was not a survivor fan. Um, but he, I don't, I don't know, whatever. He wanted to continue hanging out. Not in a romantic way. He was married. He's older. He was just, whatever. He wanted to stay associated, and he said, come hang out with me on Friday. My friend Alan Cumming is in town. So Alan Cumming, 
I, I credit with my own personal sexual revolution. Uh, I was 12 years old. I saw Cabaret, which is a musical that Alan starred in the revival of very famously as the MC. And I remember being 12 and like walking in the theater saying, oh, I'm going to go see a musical. And seeing Alan coming in all sorts of leather and straps and dancing and being very sexual. It's a very sexual musical. And, you know, a transformation happened inside me. And I walked out of that, you know, an adult who was ready to have sexual experiences. So, uh, you know, Alan Cumming is a, a very important figure in my life. And uh, so I'm in downtown LA. I'm hanging out with this guy and Alan and the rest of the entourage. We were Alan's entourage for the night, sort of playing security and going from bar to bar, doing whatever he wants. And I end up in the back of a Mercedes with Alan Cumming. And my friend Christopher relays to Alan that he is this sort of sexual figure in my life. And so Alan starts to tell me a story from backstage at Cabaret where he was between, uh, between acts and he hit his head and he got a concussion and he was like drooling and he couldn't walk. So they had to you know, call in the understudy and call an ambulance. And as they're trying to get this like severely concussed Alan Cumming into an ambulance, he starts reaching for baby wipes and trying to wipe his ass because at the end of the first act, Alan Cumming comes out and flashes his ass and he has a swastika painted on his ass. And he's like, I had to get the swastika off my ass and I jump in like a fucking asshole. And I'm like, oh, yeah, because you're probably going to have a Jewish doctor. And he looks at me and goes, yes, that was my punchline. Thanks. And that was it. I stole his punchline and he was done with me. I completely, I'm like, one of my heroes. And I, I ruined it because I had, to, I had to get the joke in before you did. <laughs> I mean that's that's great. Like, is that like a, a normal LA experience? Like, you move to LA and you just you just start meeting people, or was that? I think that was pretty special. I don't. I can't yeah. say that it's happened again. <laughs> uh, no, it was pretty wild. But like my first day in LA, I'm just like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, it was a wild way to, uh, yeah, to end. That was the end of my first week in LA. Was blowing my relationship with Alan Cumming. I'd always hoped to wow. blow Alan Cumming, not blow. <laughs> Oh, I had no nice. idea where that story was going to end up, so it no. could have gone there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is sort of what I was saying about the uh, being the scuzzy <laughs> comedian, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's that was really interesting what you were saying about like like it's interesting how you know it, it, we all we always talk about how the edit on Survivor like the edit can really paint a picture of something that that maybe was a little bit different and you know they often portray winners as more likable and more successful than maybe they even were because they want you to feel good about the winner and stuff like that so like your character on survivor is not necessarily who you are as a person and it's 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 interesting to hear you say that like you were portrayed in a, like they took a certain part of you and portrayed that as like as though this is the main part this is who Zeke is and then you came off of survivor and that's how everyone or at least most people saw you and when so many people see you in a certain way you you start to believe it you're like well i guess i guess that's who i am yeah like that, that's very interesting to me yeah well i think also i you know i'm i'm a writer and i have had opportunities to write uh, as a result of survivor and i think you i i was like well I have these opportunities because of Survivor, but on Survivor, they're seeing this guy. The, the name of the, my, who I am on Survivor, by the way, is Little Dude. Uh, that's, that's the name of, of what I call like the, the version of me who's on Survivor is Little Dude. And because he's like, oh, he's like, he's like farting and eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches <laughs> and winning challenges. And like, ah, he's such a little dweeb. Like I, if I watched me on Survivor, I'd be like, who is this asshole? I don't like him. Um, I, uh, yeah, so I 
I was like, well, this is what people respond to. And if I'm like putting my whole timeline of my life together thinking, well, for most of my life, people have not liked me. I have not been someone who people wanted to be friends with or responded to in a positive way. But on Survivor, in this edited version of me, people really seem to like him. People are crazy about him. So maybe I should try to be him instead of trying to be who I was before if I want people to continue to be interested in in my writing. And that's just not a tenable thing. It, it's, yeah. just, it's just not. Um, and I think that I, I, I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, there is the, I think the like earnest, charming little survivor boy. And then there is the, I think, kind of more the the spicier more irreverent version of me and it's finding the right mix of these two these two sides of my personality do you feel like like be like being able to find that mix and come to a good balance in terms of who you are is a result of overcoming the the challenges that survivor uh put to you or is it part of what helps you overcome it oh gosh i don't know well i think look i think what survivor did um and and I think it's a credit to, so I think Survivor empowers people in a way that is is less commonly appreciated because there is the the the, more, the understood way that Survivor empowers people of I went out and I did something really hard and I didn't think I could do it and I surprised myself. You know, I didn't know I could starve. I didn't know I could win challenges. I didn't know I could influence people. There's there's that way. But there is this other way of Survivor, and I think this is maybe the element which makes Survivor so intoxicating for the players, is that never before in my life did I have people who were important people, like Jeff Probst and the other producers, say, we really think you're interesting, uh, and we want to listen to you. I have never been listened to like I have been by Survivor producers, who you go talk to every day and will just listen. They want to know everything that's in your mind. Every thought you have is interesting and relevant. They ask you questions. They challenge you. My, I never felt like my voice was so important as it did when I was on Survivor. And then when I left Survivor, I left feeling empowered in that way. I left feeling empowered in that what I had to say and my point of view was, was relevant. And I think that, and maybe it isn't, maybe it was just an inflation of my own ego for the tasks that, that I, that we all face together. Um, but I think that I thought, well, my challenge now is to figure out what I want to say, because there's going to be someone who will listen. Uh, so does that answer your question? That it wasn't so much about the overcoming the challenges, which has allowed me to, I think, kind of continue to develop my identity more so it was the belief that I need to believe that what is inside me is the is the thing that people will ultimately be interested in. I don't know if that was coherent at all. No, no, I, th- I think it makes sense. Uh, like, because um, it's, I guess it, it sort of puts you in a position, especially um, like, like after what you went through, where it's like, you sort of have to develop a, a voice, like you have to like, figure out what do I want to say with with the voice that I feel like I now have. Um, and, and it's something that I hadn't really considered before in like, in terms of, cause I feel like a lot of people, they come off the show and it is about sort of like either the challenges that they face in terms of the, the attention that they get or like getting back to, to regular life or something like that. But if you do want to have a voice and if you feel like you have things to say, then it is important to 
uh, I guess you're confronted with this thing where like now all of a sudden a bunch of people are listening and now like, okay, wait a minute. Yeah. What do you want to say? What am I saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was a big challenge. And I remember trying to explain it to my friends, trying to make what, what I was going through relatable because that was often difficult. Um, because no one in the world was going through what I was going through at the moment. So I kept saying like, imagine you have to speak for all male podcasters. What is <laughs> right? You were the representative uh, or, or entertainment podcast, whatever it is. What, what is your message to podcasters? What do you think people need to hear and need to say? Um, or whatever group it is you represent. And that, that question of like, all right, fine. We're listening. What do you want to say? It was really a, uh, I think it's a mountain I continue to climb, but I'm I'm glad that I get to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I I can like obviously not relate in the same way, but like when I before I podcasted, I always felt like uh for, for like for no noble reason at all or anything, but like I always felt like I have things to say about these shows, like about strategy, about uh the players, about like uh how we perceive them and how we treat them. And I got on the podcast and I felt like I was able to sort of express a lot of those thoughts. Um, and, but at the same time, it's like, once I, once I had the platform, it was kind of like, okay, well, like what else should I be, should I be saying right now? Like, what like I have this podcast, which is basically a free form every time I'm on here. Like, what, what should I be saying? Like, is there a message I should be pushing? Like, Cause I don't do you feel... think that there is like a right thing that there yeah, is a, yeah. a, there's like, there's a right thing. And I don't know. I did it the right way. There's, mm-hmm. you're kind of searching for that, like the, the truth of it. Right. And, yeah. I, and I feel like, uh, yeah. And like, I like sort of what I've resigned myself to right now, at least is like, just at least having these conversations and just being as open as I can about like searching for whatever it is that we're trying to talk about. Uh, like that's something, right? Like people are hearing this and maybe they're getting something out of it. Um, and people are sharing their stories and like, uh, I feel like that's, that's something for now, but I do, I do still feel like I'm searching for like, well, like what can I be doing? What can I be saying to, to, I don't know, do, do better. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's about finding what, what, what really sparks you. Cause I think for me, I've been thinking a lot about, um, I guess, like facades and expectation in the wake of being uh, thinking, well, there I'm supposed to be this person. And I think in many times in my life, I've confronted thinking, well, I'm supposed to be this person. This is who people expect me to be. This is who people want me to be. And then coming to the realization that I just need to be who I really am. And you would think, I've, I've done this a handful of times, you would think I would have learned this, this progression at this point, but I continue to have to rediscover this process. And I, I think we're all confronting expectations. Um, we're all trying to be who other people want us to be. And it's so nice when you can have a conversation and be like, so, so we don't have to be who people expect. We can just like be honest with people. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think that's like, that's how you find friends you can connect with is when you feel like you're, you're being yourself, you're being authentic and they don't judge you for it. You don't feel people mm-hmm. are recoiling. In fact, you feel like they're leaning in. Yeah, and and that's that's like really what I I tried to make this podcast to be for for myself and and whoever's on with me. And I feel like uh, like for the most part, the the audience has been very willing to be on board with that every given big brother podcast i do there's like a ton of people that are like you're the worst person in the world because you think this person's a bad player but with this podcast i feel like basically almost all of the feedback i get is just is people that have found something in the conversation that has 
that they can relate to that has sparked something in them that they want to express. And um, they're very supportive and, and understanding and there's there's no judgment. I used to hear this all the time because I'm, I'm an avid entertainment listener and watcher. But like people always talk, oh, my my fans, my audience, they're the best in the world. But like I really do like uh, I understand where that where that mindset comes from now because i really do feel very appreciated uh and i i very much appreciate the 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 people that have added to the atmosphere of this podcast where we can be opening uh we can be open and and accepting and and allow these conversations to happen without judgment yeah i love it i think you're on track i think you figured it out that <laughs> seems to I be I like i no cuz i think that's like because you're on a in part of a podcast empire, uh, which is about the shows and about having people come and be their character from the show to talk about the show that they were a character on. Does that make sense? But what Mm -hmm. this podcast says, hey, we've sort of invested in you as a personality. Now, here's a space to get to know you as a person more completely, which is not, I I think, something that being on the show or, or maybe doing recap podcasts necessarily invites. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I I feel like this is, uh, at the very least, has just been a valuable experience for me to get to talk to so many different people and like just be like, there's something about the idea that like, this is a podcast where we're just we're open. That's that's the nature of it. And then it, it just it sort of allows people to just open up and just like have an actual conversation, which is something that it, for me at least is is kind of rare in my life uh, and now it happens basically once a week yeah no, it yeah. is the the like the deep conversation but i thought i like mm. the deep conversation oh yeah i didn't used to like the deep conversation and now if i hang out with people and they just want to talk about like whatever i'm like no let us talk about something real <laughs> none of this bullshit what are your hopes yes. what are your dreams what's holding you back from getting what you want <laughs> I do. I, I have an annoying habit of doing that right now. Um, I'm like, all right, what do you want? What are you doing in your life? What do you want? You know, do you want to be doing this? What do you want? What do you want? Like with you, Taryn, what do you want? What is the big picture? What's the goal? What are you, what are you aspiring for? You know, I actually, I recently quit my, my full-time uh, video producer job Holy to shit, focus on, on podcasting okay. um, and, you know, whatever else I may might be able to do um and so like right now a lot of like whatever else you may you want to do so like you want to like you want to be like a mark Marin. you want to have these interview podcasts (laughs) and parlay that into a television show i I mean that would that would be cool if that's where it went uh it's not like my plan or anything but um but really just like uh like when i started when i started rough as a podcast um it was it was like I didn't even think of it as a potential like career thing, but I thought of it as just like, this is just something I will, I will set everything aside so that I can do this because I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the more I did it, uh, and, and like the, the further I got and the, the more successful it was, it was like, could, could I, maybe I should make this a, a potential goal. Cause this doesn't seem realistic, but I'll make this a potential goal. I'll work, I'll work toward this as like, you know, dream scenario. Someday I'll just be like a full-time podcaster. Um, and that's still a dream scenario. It's not, it's not a reality yet. Um, but well, it's uh, a goal which you're working towards. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, uh, it's just, it's like, it's so different from any other work that I've done because like it is work. It's still like a lot of, a lot of work, but it doesn't feel like 
work like uh, the motivation is completely different where like at work you're like i have to do this or i'll, I'll get in trouble or like I'll, i don't know i don't know what the motivation is but like this it's like i have to do this because like i i want it to be done like i i want i want to do it you yeah know, it's, that's the it's dream different. to to yeah. get to live your passion and it not feel like labor because you're like i, I gotta do it i must yeah, do yeah, it for sure. that's that's am- i'm so happy to hear that that's amazing oh, thank you yeah, it's it's it is it's challenging. Like uh, like I I don't know if I'll be able to to be successful doing it, but um, but it's definitely like well, it's, fuck it's it. night who and cares? day. Yeah, who cares if you're going to succeed or you fail? You got to go do it. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. You got to go live yeah. the dream. I guess that's the question I keep asking myself: is what am I doing today, and is it going to lead me ultimately where I want to go? But the trickiest part is figuring out where you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always asking my friends, what, like, what do you want? Where do you want to go? And they're always like, oh, gosh, I don't know. Like, if nothing else, like, I've, I spent many years of my life living quietly and not knowing where I wanted to go, sort of taking small steps, right? Like, I was fine to go do improv shows in basements in front of 15 people who were too drunk to care. There, there were zero stakes with that. Or make comedy videos that no one was going to see. And it, I enjoyed doing it, and it felt like something like I wanted to do. But I also think I never really tried that hard because the stakes were so low. And then that's kind of what Survivor was for me. It was like, put some stakes behind it. Like, if you, if you, you kind of know where you want to go. So, like, go, like, make an attempt. Set the stakes high. Work really hard. See what happens. Um, and that, that kind of that put me closer to where you are, which is I'm doing something and I really enjoy it. And it doesn't feel like work. Um, so for me, I think I'm kind of a high stakes guy. I'm like, yeah, let's uh, let's go hang off the cliff and like find a way to climb back <laughs> back up. I, I think otherwise, I, because it's about like having adventure. I think that was mm. the problem with all the small stakes stuff is it didn't feel it didn't feel challenging. It didn't feel like I was embarking into the unknown, and that's kind of what gets me going. Uh, and you know, so I, I want to imbue my life with adventure. And if I get where I want to go, great. But if I just have a bunch of like fun epic challenges uh on the way there then well that's a, a life well lived too is it not yeah for sure do, like do you do you feel like there's something like that enabled you to feel that way i think i had the realization that i was telling myself i was happy but i wasn't happy and i was 27 and was getting older by the second and i realized that i was going to be 30 and i was not where i wanted to be in the world um and that if that was going to change, I needed to start taking risks and I needed to start taking big risks and just believing that I could handle. It. Yeah. yeah. I think that was for me. It was, just, I was just like, I had, like, I confronted my own. I was like, I was like, Oh fuck. I'm unhappy. I don't like where I am. I want to get somewhere else. Go to it. Jump yeah. off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, I think that's part of it. I feel like, I feel like, uh, like if you feel like, well, what do I have? What do I have to lose? Like, uh, if I'm not, where I want to be, if I'm not happy, then I might as well just go for it. Right. Right. I feel like it's, it's that, or like if you've already experienced losing, like if you've already experienced, like what happens if I fail, then, then they're done that baby. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Like, well, whatever, then I'll, then I'll fail again and then I'll, I'll build back up. Right. I think there's also, there, there are a couple of people in my life who were, I think so unhappy and so miserable and were kind of assholes to everyone that they knew out of their own misery. 
and I, I looked at them and I just thought like, you know, if, if all you want to do is have sex with attractive men, but you feel like you don't want to go meet guys because you're unhappy with your weight, like go like, go, go change your weight, go work out. Like I've done that. Like I've lost like a hundred pounds. Like you can go do that. You can go thick, get out of your own way. And I was seeing it in all these people around me. And then I think I finally like turned the lens back on myself <laughs> and was like, Oh buddy, you got to take your own advice. Um, but I saw these people and I was like, God, I really don't want to grow up to be that person. I really don't want to grow up to be that person. And then I, I tried to take steps not to. Mm -hmm. So, so was the, the move to LA, was that part of this, uh, this like, uh, you're like, you're going for it a little bit. Yeah. Well, if you like roll in the, in the upright citizens brigade, comedy world, there is sort of a clock. If you start in New York as to when you're going to move to LA and I think for me, even before Survivor, it was the question of, in three years, I'm going to make the jump. And honestly, I think I would have, did I not have kind of this like bigger project to, 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 to accomplish after Survivor, I would have moved shortly after coming home from Fiji um, with the hopes that the, the publicity might help me get a writing job and I might be able to make connections in the, the UCB world here in L.A., but I, I, I needed to stay with my friends because I needed them. Um, and even, yeah, that, that was definitely the right move. Uh, but yeah, I, I moved out here because I had opportunities and people who were interested in, in working with me out here. So I made the jump in July. I drove across the country with my friend Lauren Brickman. Uh, so Lauren is actually a pretty special person in my life. We um, grew up uh, literally across the street from each other. Well, in different, like across the street from each other in different neighborhoods, not uh, her house is on one side, my house is on the other side. Within, <laughs> so within like two football fields of each other, we did the same uh, musical theater program growing up. We both did competitive speech and debate. We both volunteered at the same uh, youth theater program, yet we did not meet each other until we were in our mid-20s in an improv class in New York City. Uh, that's, I guess, I suppose if you believe in fate, that's when the universe would have us meet so we can make the most impact on each other's lives but the cool thing about lauren so i don't talk to anybody i grew up with no one from childhood no one from high school only really a handful of people from college um and, and living in new york i had no connection to my oklahoma roots or my childhood roots until i found lauren and then because we had all of these same cultural touchstones and knew some of the same people it felt like i had someone to share kind of the good parts of childhood with who, you know, kind of didn't know me when I was a kid. Uh, and so we drove across the country together uh, in, in I-35, I-40, whatever the hell it is that goes across the country, drives right through the middle of Oklahoma City. So we stopped in Oklahoma City for a handful of days and had the, I, I haven't really been back to Oklahoma. I'd been almost, it had been a decade since I'd been back. And we got to go do Oklahoma City together as adults, which I'd, I'd never gotten a chance to do. Uh, and it, it was insane. We went to gay bars in Oklahoma city and it made me really glad I didn't live in Oklahoma city because although there was this beautiful, I think kind of like antagonistic pride about these gay cowboys and farmers, like living out and proud in Oklahoma, gosh, it's just still really hard to be gay in the middle of the country. Uh, and I was glad I didn't have to deal with that bullshit. Um, but yeah, we, we drove on out here and I, I, found an apartment uh, before. I found an apartment in the week following the Game Changers finale and moved in and knew like six people in LA. 
uh, and don't know many more because I've been uh, traveling and speaking and doing various engagements throughout the country. So although though I've lived here for like five or six months, I've only like been here for very small pockets of time. I think averaging, I think accumulating to like two months total. So I'm still very new to LA and have unpacked moving boxes and you know, uh, I'm putting the pieces together. I'm going to be a bit more stationary, I think, as I as I am focusing on writing right now. But uh, it's uh, it's been a it's been a wild ride. Yeah. Do, I, do, I've, are you? Uh, did you see the fires? Yes, they're not. I'm in West Hollywood, so the fires are not near me. But there, there's smoke in the air, and the air quality is poor. It's crazy. I, yeah, I saw. Um, I saw like the like the videos of like people driving like. Oh it's my, crazy. doesn't it look like it's the fucking apocalypse? Yes. Yeah. It's straight out of a movie. Yeah. Um, no, my mother, so all my East Coast friends, they're following it and they don't know LA. So they're like, you need to get on a plane. You need to come back. You're going to get consumed <laughs> by the fire. And I'm just like, guys, I live in West Hollywood. We're not in the wilderness. There are no flames in West Hollywood, only flamers. West, <laughs> West Hollywood is the gay neighborhood. I guess I should have prefaced that so the joke would land. But anyway. Um, so uh you mentioned you mentioned like your your friends uh like being like a necessary part of of getting you through like the post survivor uh part like like what what was it about like that like how did how were they able to help yeah so i and i think this is so i'm not close to my mom and dad though i don't know that that matters as much because i don't live near them you know my my dad lives in oklahoma and my mom uh doesn't live in Oklahoma, but she doesn't live in New York either. And, you know, Survivor is like a pretty traumatic uh, experience and you need people to take care of you. And I think more than anything, you need people whom you can trust unconditionally. You need people that you don't have to worry in Survivor terms about them like turning on you and voting you out or backstabbing you. And I think I have one of my really good friends is a big Survivor fan, Alex Forsenhausler. Um, but most of them are not like most of them like don't give a shit about survivor. And it was really great to have that perspective when I would go down survivor rabbit holes or start to kick myself about decisions I made or being upset about how I played strategically in game changers or this, or getting wrapped up in the, the drama and the gossip of the survivor fan world. It was really great to have people to kind of throw cold water in my face and be like, Shut the fuck up. You sound like an idiot. Like, you realize this stuff doesn't matter. Like, see the bigger picture here. Also, no one cares. Um, and, you know, I, the people who came and, like, I never watched, I think, a single episode of Survivor with my dad. I think I watched one episode of Survivor with my mom. She came into town to watch the premiere of Millennials Gen X with me. But the people who, like, came to my apartment every week to watch Survivor with me were all my comedy friends. And some of them had watched Survivor before and were fans, but most of them hadn't, and most of them didn't care, and they just cheered me on and were excited whenever I was on screen. Um, and that there are so many ways that Survivor could have just been terrible the entire time, but they, they, they made it so that it was joyful in so many moments. Um, and like when I, you know, I flew to L.A., for, for the big outing episode. I flew in early and watched the episode and, and gave a couple of interviews um, like before it, it aired. And like my best friend Kate, like my mom and my dad didn't come with me to LA for that. My best friend Katie did. And she held my hand 
the entire time she came with me backstage on uh, the talk when I was completely fucked, like, like flipping out. Like I, I almost had a fucking conniption before the talk and she was the one who was like, you're going to be fine. Um, like for the Game Changers finale, none of my blood relations were in the audience. All of my tickets went to my friends because my mom wasn't interested in going and my dad just said, I think you'd rather have one of your friends take my tickets. Um, and you, if you play, like, you know, it's, it, it involves like your whole community, um, being, you know, being on television, like there are people who rally around you. Like the Brett had the Boston fire department and, you know, Sunday had her church and, you know, I, I had my goofy friends and, uh, <laughs> it, again, as a guy who's not always had friends, it really, you know, it really made me feel special. And it, you know, we didn't know, we, for nine months, we didn't know how everything was going to turn out. We didn't know that the reaction was going to be so positive. We didn't know it was going to be so well reported. We didn't know that all these people were going to rally to my side and sort of understand my point of view. We prepared for the worst case scenario in which the headlines could have been terrible and everyone was going to hate me and I was going to be vilified. And, you know, there are just so many ways it could have gone wrong. And to know that no matter what happened, I had a bedrock of people who were by my side come hell or high water. Like, that's, you know, most, that's what stopped me from running down the street, like screaming, fuck every day, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what gave me, I think, the strength and the courage to move forward. Yeah. Uh, were, were you not super close with your parents growing up? No. Um, I, I think it's, so my family was sort of run like a business. Um, my parents co-owned a business, so I think that may have contributed to the atmosphere. Um, but we're not like sappy people. I think we'll say, I love you, but that's about as, as sentimental as you'll hear from us. Um, you know, we sort of have that John Wayne, most would say masculinity. I would say ruggedness because it applies equally to the women in my family as much as the men where you don't have feelings, you swallow them. Uh, you don't cry because it interferes with the way things are. If you have any emotion, it's anger. And if you, you express that anger in a bar fight, right? Uh, so if you, I know this because I've been in a lot of therapy since I've been on Survivor, actually expressing emotions and being vulnerable is what connects you with people. And since we never expect emotion, expressed emotions or we're vulnerable with each other, I, I never, we never developed super close bonds in any particular parts of my family. Um, you know, we're around, we spend holidays with each other, and I think my parents would take, like do deeply love me and would take any actions necessary to express that love. Um, but I kind of didn't, like, there was nothing anyone could do. I just needed people to reassure me, I suppose. Uh, and that's why my friends became the, the people that most, uh, you know, surrounded me. It's actually interesting. You know, my father and I, we have this like very tearful, emotional moment where he says very nice things to me, um, uh, during the loved ones visit of millennials versus gen x and that i can say is the first and only time i have ever heard such sentiments from my father and it makes it really special that i have a video of it and can go watch it <laughs> right i'm like oh dad oh he said a nice thing about me once that was great <laughs> yeah well i guess like uh you know put in extreme situations it's like uh it, it draws it out yeah i mean honestly I, so my mom was not interested at all in, in, in being part of survivor stuff. And I tried to convince them to let my friends, like one of my friends come out to be my loved one. But they said, if you have a, like, if you have a willing family member, then you need to like, 
then we want to pick the family member just because that's a connection that people understand. And so I called my dad and I was like, is there any chance you want to do this? And he's like, oh yeah, definitely. Okay. And I kind of thought, you know, at the loved one's visit, everyone's loved one comes out and they cry and they scream and they like pick their loved one up and there's this big emotional moment. And I remember telling everybody, I'm like, my dad's gonna, my dad's gonna come and he's not gonna run out to me. He's gonna kind of lumber over and they'll probably like shake my hand and pat me on the shoulder and be like, <laughs> well done, buddy. You've uh, done uh, okay so far, I suppose, in this competition. But he wasn't. He was so like, he cried and he was so loving. And it, I, I really threw me for a loop. <laughs> I that that's that's crazy. I, I would have been very surprised. Um, so uh, you mentioned that um, that Survivor, like you stopped watching. Like, is that uh, that's is that sort of like the the sort of like uh, like don't meet your heroes kind of thing? Like, it's it's sort of like demystified for you, and now you don't really watch it. Or no, it it's not else? that. Um, I I would say I love Survivor more deeply than I ever have, but I also I think. I love the people who, who make Survivor, and I love the, the process by which Survivor is made. And I think it's not that I... I mean, it's not that I, I don't love Survivor anymore, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. It is more that I'm trying to put a little distance between myself and Survivor. I, you know, I think that it is such an extreme experience. Like a sensory overload, more happens when you're on Survivor than happens in, like, five years of your life. And... I think the reason why, you know, every Survivor player will tell you, I'm, I'm probably, as a, unless you're a veteran and you've actually been to war, that Survivor is the hardest thing that you've ever done. Yet every Survivor, like, would, like, cut off their cock to go play again. Everyone is so thirsty to go do it again. And I, uh, and, it, and it's, it's, it's because it's really amazing and it's really special. Um, I... I, I'm not interested in, in doing it again. Um, but, you know, before I went on Survivor, I had, I had goals that were not related to my public image. I wanted to be a good Survivor player. I wanted to be well-regarded as a strategist. And I am, am not by many people. Uh, and I, you know, everything that happened sort of impacted my life on such a bigger level on Survivor. And I'm very happy in the way that it did. But... You know, there's still part of me that was drawn to Survivor because of strategy and gets upset when I think about, like, moves that I made or, or, or ways that I wish it could have gone differently. And, but that's, see, that's why I have my friends that throw cold water on my face and be like, look at the bigger picture. This doesn't actually matter. So for me, I think I, I really needed to focus on my writing and focus on my next project. Um, and in order to do that, I've tried to cut Survivor out of my life which means not watching on Wednesdays. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who I really enjoyed playing Survivor with who I still consider good friends, but I don't talk to. I don't return their text messages. I don't return their calls. And it's not because I don't like them, though I understand that that's how it is perceived and that's how it feels. Um, but it's, it's just because I need to bring new ideas and fresh air into my life and kind of air it out. But I very much hope that one day I'll have the new groundwork laid for what's next and i can bring survivor back into my life as the joy and as the escape it once was yeah uh, th i mean that makes complete sense to me like uh especially recently i talked to uh to kevin martin who was on big brother canada um and uh he talked about just like he'll still have 
dreams about about playing and like he'll he'll wake up like in a sweat like because it's hard to get it out of your mind yeah um and and like two nights ago thinking two nights ago i had it i had a dream about a season i got going back for another all-star season and it was terrible (laughs) and i woke up and i was like oh oh fuck thank god i'm I'm not there (laughs) (laughs) what's it's it's like it's like a trauma and and like it's it's hard to i imagine it's it's hard to 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 get over that like it it must be so uh ingrained in in like everything you're doing because it's it's something that you do for such a long period of time and it's such an intense experience that i can completely understand why like you need to just sort of be like all right like i gotta set this aside and focus on getting my head completely wrapped around like real life well i think particularly because if you wanted to and people do you can let survivor really be your extracurricular activity um you know you can interact with the fans online you can be doing the podcast you can be going to the tapings and the charity events and whatever like you can really let survivor continue to consume you um and i think i don't want to be i i don't want to do that um and mm-hmm. so for me it's it's a little bit more the the cold turkey because i think there's also an element of and anyone who gets cast on Survivor, anyone who is able to make it through that casting process, has to be a little bit narcissistic and, and driven by attention. And that's what continuing to participate in this community allows you to do, is to get that little shot of attention, um, a, a shot of fame and notoriety. And it's a drug. It's, it's toxic. Like, you get addicted to it. I mean, here I am saying, like, oh, God, no more Survivor, and I'm on, I'm on your podcast. <laughs> I immediately said yes. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll talk to Darren. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting part, actually. Like, because um, like, I, I talked to Jordan Parhar, who sort of quit podcasting mm-hmm. um, to sort of, I guess, a similar sort of situation uh, a little bit, where it's like he just needed to get, like, separate himself from all of it so he could like focus on real life for a while um and i would like i was like i'm having you on my podcast to discuss this and i feel like i'm i feel like i'm doing you harm right now no like, you're not maybe. because <laughs> i you know you said that this is uh, this is about your whole life it's not about survivor yeah. i was like okay yeah i'll come i'll come talk to somebody i sit in my apartment alone writing all day i'll i'll, I'll have a conversation that other people can listen to <laughs> yeah and and that's, that's that's what i hope it is like it's you know it's i hope that it doesn't like sort of draw you back in i hope that it is sort of just something that like is i don't know maybe like an outlet or like a way to just sort of explore uh thoughts and ideas and just express yourself and whatever else you want it to be no i think it's um, good i'm not i'm not gonna go binge all those episodes of survivor <laughs> yeah. i promise i'm not taking you call, off call into the, the voicemail show and be like i've got a thought on right <laughs> um <laughs> uh so uh tell me tell me more about the comedy uh like so you when did when did you get involved with with comedy i want to get involved with comedy i got involved in comedy in 2013 um i was looking for so I, I stopped PAing and I started doing SAT tutoring in college admissions consulting. Um, and what was looking for writing classes. And when I took a writing class one place and wasn't really into it, but someone else in that writing class said, you should check out the, you're, you're, you're kind of funny. Uh, you should check out the Upright Citizens Brigade. So I signed up for a sketch writing class 
And but at UCB, so they have sketch writing, and so sketches are they are what are on SNL. They are short, non-narrative comedic scenes. And uh, but the big thing at UCB is improv, which is a team of people on a stage making up comedic scenes uh, on the fly. Nothing is written, nothing is written down, nothing is recorded, though there there are recordings. Um, and it's you know you do it once and you never do it again. And uh, I was I had read um, I like uh, Tina Fey's book. I really like Tina Fey's book, and I knew she had done a ton of improv, and I had done theater as a kid. And I thought, well, what the hell? I'll sign up for it. And I, I actually don't know that I would have continued doing it had I not had the teacher that I had. Um, he is a, a brilliant man, and this is verifiable. You can verify it for yourself. His name is Anthony Atamanik. He does the best Donald Trump impression in the entire world. So good, in fact, he has his own show on Comedy Central called The President Show, where he does a late night show as Donald Trump. Um, oh my. He is he's brilliant. He is dark. He is smart and weird and, and terrible and ev- everything. Um, and I, I fell in love with him. I fell in love with improv and start, I did a, a, a lot of really a fuck ton of improv. This is the thing. Improv. It is also like a drug. It's a, it's kind of like a cult because there are all these ethics. Like if, if people know, I think a generic bit about improv, you know that you're supposed to say yes. And so if you're doing a scene with someone and they're like, Oh, we're in this pizzeria and you're my cousin. You're not supposed to say, no, we're at a car dealership and you're a drag. <laughs> you're that would to say, be pretty funny, actually, though. <laughs> <laughs> but that you just get one joke and you're up there with people for yeah. 25 minutes on the stage. And it's like, great. Because you have to, if you're going to like make stuff happen together, you have to trust each other. You have to love mm-hmm. each other. You have to be willing to put yourself on the line to look stupid so that your team doesn't look stupid. Um and they're, you know, you're you're part of an improv team, right? Like a baseball team or a football team. And you got to go hang out together and bond to get to know each other. And it's this really beautiful way to build a community. It's it's improv is an ethical system, and uh, people uh, people really fall in love with it. And they do a lot of it, pay a lot of money to do a lot of it, spend a lot of time trying to become a better improviser, which is great. Except there is no such thing as a professional improviser. Improv is a theater game that people use to develop themselves as writers or actors, but it doesn't have like an end in and of itself aside from being a performer on a house team at an improv theater, which not only do you not get paid to do, you pay to do. Um, so uh, I, I really got tied up in doing improv and then had to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, there's no future in this. Uh, you got to back your way out and remember that you're trying to write. Um, so now I don't do improv anymore. I, uh, I, I do storytelling. So I, uh, storytelling, it's, it's, it's like being a stand-up, except you have one long joke. Yes. Uh, I will tell, I have a handful of like funny stories that I, I tell it at comedy shows. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I haven't, is that like a, like, like people would, would go, like it's called storytelling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard of that before. Yeah, or or sometimes I'm up there with stand-ups or variety acts or whatever. But I've got like a five-minute story and a ten-minute story, or I've got like shorter and longer versions of the same story. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of a version of stand-up. I don't do it as much as I would like to, largely because I've been traveling around speaking, which is serious storytelling. It's not very funny. <laughs> it's very like yeah. yeah. 
Let us let us talk about effective allyship towards marginalized communities. <laughs> well, what, what's that like? Like going around and speaking? Like, uh, it's um, it's 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 weird. Uh, that's 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 a very vague and unhelpful descriptor. Um, I I don't know. It's a very different um type. Of, it's performing, but it's a very different type of performing. Um. Because the point is to be sincere and earnest and like win people to your cause, which is a very different intention than making people laugh. Um, and uh, yeah, I, so the you know when I go and speak, I I wrote the speech about my survivor experience and uh, it's and it's the 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 argument I guess the training element because that's what everybody wants is they want you to come be a diversity speaker and teach people about diversity. And the angle I take is, te- is teaching about allyship. So how to be supportive of marginalized people around you. And I illustrate this in two ways. The first way is, um, you know, I talk about Survivor and then I play the clip of my outing and I talk about how the people around me, Jeff Probst and my tribe mates, were effective allies because they took the burden off of my shoulders of needing to educate and defend myself. Like they filled that gap so that I could, you know, come back and be my best self. Um, and the second plank is uh, they, you know, Jeff Probst and the Survivor team and CBS and everyone else really enabled me uh, by like believing in me and empowering me and putting me in charge of the, you know, putting me in charge of my outing. Um, to learn to use my voice and have empowered me to go forth and speak and write in the world. And I would, did not feel empowered in that way uh, before Survivor. Um, and that's a beautiful thing when people who are different than you can believe in you and help elevate you. And that is a, that is, that is a way to be an ally who creates uh, systemic change, is to believe and raise up those who are different from you. Oh, gosh. Sorry, I just had to go into uh, corporate mode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I think there, it's the, the, the biggest difference for me is that everything I say in those scenarios is very tailored. Because not only am I trying to, I think, engage in the political practice of winning allies, I'm also being an educator and trying to make people better allies. And I feel like whenever I talk about my outing or the stuff around my outing, I have to be very careful in what I say. Like the, those messages are very tailored. Um, because I want to make sure I always am saying the right thing. You know, it, it, it's, it's very important to, to, to be on message, I suppose. Whereas when I'm in a comedy world, I can say whatever the hell I want. <laughs> right. So I imagine, uh, like, it's a lot, like, it's, it's like, uh, it must be freeing to be able to do, like, the storytelling after, you know, going and doing a bunch of talks. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that's the thing I, I was speaking about earlier in the podcast of playing this character and I'm like, Oh my God, am I this character versus being more holistically? Um, and the guy who goes and speaks, he is a character. He's a, he's a version of me. Like everything you said is true. I, I believe in it wholeheartedly. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not who you want to hang out with on the Saturday night. <laughs> you definitely don't want to hang out with that guy on the Saturday night. Yeah. He's a super What's fucking it? buzzkill. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because it's like you, you like you almost have to sort of like, uh, I guess, like sand down the edges to like have a presentable like this is like you're trying to make yourself out to be like. Well, you want to be the- someone from whom people are going to be willing to receive your message. 
right. right? If like the goal is to win followers to the cause, you want to be someone that they'll want to follow. That the, or I think the greatest number of people will want to follow, right? I think you yourself cannot be offensive, you know, because I think mm. it's maybe less about the message and more about the messenger. And if I can be a messenger people want to follow, that's the most important thing I can do. That I can speak well and you know, argue my case is sort of secondary. Yeah. It's it's interesting like that you have to sort of like maintain that dichotomy in your personality where it's like you're doing two very different things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at some point too, and I've made that decision recently, you've got to be willing to just like cut that cord. Um and I think I, I have made that decision recently is, you know, I, you know, you do, you do okay going and speaking at, at, at companies and colleges if you have this, I think, very corporately acceptable diversity message. Um, but for who I ultimately want to be, like my big goal, you know, that destination to which I am, you know, pointing my destroyer, eh, you know, I don't know that how much uh, longer that's going to be part of be part of that picture and you got to be willing to like cut that cord. And I think for me, I'm like, yeah, I'm, you know, whenever I've got the next thing lined up that can pay my bills, I am ready to no longer be the guy who got outed on survivor. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. And I'm very excited when that day will come. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so have, have you have any other like, uh, like weird LA experiences? Oh my God. Well, I, Oh yeah, no, I had a great, Oh I, yes, 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 yes. So, <laughs> My dear friend Lauren Brickman, the person who drove with me across the country, she recently booked a role in a Julianne Moore film and was, was staying with me while she was in town to, to shoot it. And the thing I love about Brickman is that she, I, I can often be a little nerdy and socially anxious and she really pulls me out of my shell. So she was in town and on Sunday night, we went out and about and got a little shwasty and uh, we're dancing, having a good time at the Abbey, which is like the, is like, there are many big gay bars in, in West Hollywood, but it is like the one. I guess it, it had its own reality show, which is funny because it's sandwiched right between uh, Pump and Sir, which are Lisa, Lisa Vanderpump's two bars. Uh, that's like the reality show bar corner, regardless. Uh-huh. And I love, I love the Abbey. I, I went to the Abbey to like, uh, you know, celebrate being done with, uh, with the outing. And that one of the go-go boys there is this guy named Ginger Eddie. And he's, he's, he's very hunky. He's Ginger, obviously. Uh, very well muscled. He's Brazilian. He's a little crazy, but he's a huge Survivor fan. And so whenever I go in, he always like makes a big deal and gives me a private dance and tells me all his thoughts about Survivor. He wants to be on Survivor. He's pitching himself as the male Abby Maria. The problem is he's not a citizen, so he's got to wait until the citizenship comes through. To, but he would be great. I mean, he would be insane. He could never win, <laughs> but he'd be a great character. Anyway, uh, so I'm at the Abbey, I'm dancing with Lauren, and a guy comes up and asks to buy us drinks, which is not uncommon. Uh, I would say, you know, great, great part of this experience is that I rarely pay for a drink in a gay bar anymore. Uh, and so we're like, yeah, sure. And he comes back with two vodka sodas, and he hands them to me with a business card that says, want a boyfriend? And then he walks away. He doesn't linger. <laughs> and I look at the card, and I'm like, oh, God, some asshole gave me his card. But I'm like, want a boyfriend? And that's all it says. And I'm like, how ballsy is that? That's so cool. Uh, and I wave him back over. And uh, we end up doing some sort of pink shot. And I, you know, made out with him uh, quite a bit in this bar. And did I not have a friend staying with me, he would have definitely made his way back to my apartment. Uh, but he's a flight attendant. So he's in town regularly. And uh, 
next time he's in LA. I think we're going to seal the deal. <laughs> that's great. How many of those cards does he have? I don't know, but that's brilliant. Like, here's the thing. Yeah. If that was a straight guy, if a straight guy gave it to a girl at a club, that oh, would man. be so creepy and weird. Yeah. It would be really yep. problematic. But like with gay guys, it was a little, it was charming. Because also with gay guys, the like default standard, if you see a guy you like, is to say, hey, want to go fuck back at my place? I mean, you could just <laughs> open with that. And that wouldn't be uncommon. Like, that wouldn't be uncouth either. That's a reasonable thing to say to someone. So that he was trying to flirt a little bit kind of made him a gentleman in my eyes. I was like, there might be something to this flight attendant. Yeah, he has to be a, a boyfriend instead of uh, right. just a straight out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, actually, I had a, a – when somebody offers to buy your drink, do you get to decide what they get you or do they get you something that they choose? Uh, no, typically they they'll, – they'll say like, well, what are you drinking? And you'll say, what are you drinking? Okay. Or they'll say, well, what do you want? Uh, yeah. Oftentimes, I'll just say whatever you're having. Yeah. I, I just, like, had that random thought. I was like, I wonder if you, like, because you talked about, like, people just constantly buying you drinks. I was like, I wonder if you, like, have a wide variety because people just choose a bunch of random things for you. Oh, no. Oh, my God. But you know where <laughs> you know where it gets to be troublesome, people buying you drinks? At least for me, both times that I have gone to live know-it-alls, it has been troublesome, people buying me drinks. Because I, at those events... I drink vodka Red Bull, which is basically diet cocaine, uh, and it's in order so I can stay up, so I can stay awake, because uh, I like I can I I prefer to go to bed at like nine thirty. So if I'm gonna be staying up till three a.m., I gotta I gotta keep energized. Um, but the problem is you're talking to so many people because when you're the 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 player at those events, you're just kind of ringed by people. You can never walk a step without someone wanting to engage yeah. with you, which that's what those events are for. It's great. I love talking to RHAP fans. Um, but there are always so many people willing to buy me drinks that I'll, I'll often be double fisting. And the moment I'll finish one and set it down, someone will bring <laughs> me another drink. So I lose all, cause I'm talking to people, I'm losing all track of how much I'm drinking. And I always get so drunk. <laughs> the first, uh, in fact, the first live know-it-alls I went to, I got so drunk. I ended up making out with a boy in the corner of that bar. Oh yeah, was that was that the one at Millennials versus Gen X? Or yeah, the, I think that's the yeah, that's the one I I saw you at. You you were in a corner, yeah. Was it that corner? Oh, there you go. I there was an elevator. I oh, who knows? <laughs> I got uh yeah, I got a little sloppy at that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well you were you were like stationed in a corner for a while. It was just I like, was uh, right by the yeah. stair because you can't. Yep. You can't, you can't move. You have, there is <laughs> yeah. always someone to fill the, fill the gap. Ugh. Yes. So yeah, it's, it's a weird experience. Well, it is because I would say walking into that room at Caroline's and then being at the bar afterwards is the closest anyone is ever going to feel to being a rock star. Like in that room, you, you, you have a, a shine, a glow about you. People are there to see you. Like, like I'm just some like regular asshole who lives in a crappy apartment in Los Angeles, and right, like I'm not like I'm not an impressive person. Uh, but when I'm in a room of RHAP fans, I I attain a level of celebrity and of specialness that I don't have in my life. Uh, and it is. Have you ever done? Have you ever done poppers? Uh, no, I don't know. What you don't know what poppers are? Okay, no. I didn't think you were. So poppers are sort of a gay thing. They are they're they're amyl nitrate. So they're an inhalant. They're technically video head cleaner. So what you would use to like clean the video head in your VCR. Uh, oh. 
Yeah, so they're chemicals that you inhale because they they loosen up your asshole and they make anal sex easier. Okay. And they're they're very popular amongst gay guys. But I mean, it's it's huffing. You're breathing in chemicals which replace the oxygen in your brain and make you relax and feel like ooey and gooey. And for like 30 seconds, it's great. It's the most amazing high. But when you come down from it, you feel so disgusting because you just inhaled chemicals in order to make sex feel better, right? Like you should feel bad. That is right and due punishment for the action that you just took. And I, I feel like that's the equivalent of the high you feel going to, an, or to, a, to a live know-it-alls event. Is for like a few hours, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then you wake up the next day hungover and you're like, oh my God, did I just think I was an important person because a bunch of reality <laughs> show fans thought I was cool and wanted to talk to me? Like, of course I feel like garbage. I should feel like garbage. That is a garbage thing to feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is hard. It's like, uh, like, like the, the trip back home after those things is always just like, uh, you're you're coming down from from that high and it's like you're all alone after being surrounded by people constantly and it's just like oh man that was uh all right back to uh normal life where yeah back to like you know buying generic advil at cvs yeah and not paying for a Uh, shot of vanilla at starbucks right like you're like ah no not today Uh, but yeah, those, they're, they're great. I, uh, I, I wish I, uh, didn't miss Austin. Um, cause they were there, they were there just a couple of days ago, um, yeah. with, uh, with Kim and Colby. Colby. Yeah. Crazy. I took, uh, I was in Oklahoma with Chris and Brett and, uh, Dave and Ken and, and, and Ryan from this, this current season, uh, a month or so ago to go see an OU game. And I took, uh, there's this really cool part of Oklahoma City called Stockyard City. And it's the old, it's the old timey part of Oklahoma City. And it's still home to the largest cattle exchange in the world. And it's like driving into a 1950s, like small cow town. It's got a main street and everything's like old and crumbly and very like old school cowboy. And I took Brett down there to buy cowboy boots when we were in Oklahoma together. And he, uh, he was showing them off at uh, know-it-alls or so he told me. And I love that. I love the thought of a Boston cop wearing cowboy boots. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's, that's how we operate. Uh, how, how, is, how is Ryan? He's good. He's a, he's a cool kid. I really enjoyed Ryan. Yeah. yeah. He's, you know, he's going through it right now. Yeah. It was, we saw him, he is someone, and I'm, I am sympathetic to this, uh, you know, when you are the fan and then all of the, like, hardcore fans kind of turn on you. Um, yep. which, which I got in full force. And I actually, I, t- I think one of the first things I said, Ryan, I was like, ah, thanks Ryan. Cause you, uh, you really took the heat <laughs> off me. They finally hate someone more than they hate me. <laughs> and you know, we were able to talk and commiserate and I was like, here are my tips for dealing with this. And I think here's how I put it in perspective. And you know, you're great. I'm not watching, but I assume you're great. Everyone says that, you know, your cock looks really huge in your underwear. So <laughs> congratulations. Yeah uh well uh i i'm sure he's not listening but ryan if you're listening you, I've already I, said I love you to him. oh yeah i'll tell him i'll text him <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird uh like i don't there is such uh hate from fanboys towards the other fanboys and it seems like you would kind of i mean i guess you're like oh gosh i could do it better and anyone who's not me you're not doing it right. So, of course, you hate them. You hold them to a higher standard, I suppose. But I think it would be nice if we could root root for each other. 
uh, like the like it's the same. Like the like gay guys never root for the gay guy on Survivor. There's always a bit of like, a, oh no, not them. I think it's because you <laughs> over-identify with them. You take everything that they do as a personal slight. I don't. Know. Hmm. I yeah. think I think it, as a whole, Survivor fans can just be nicer in general. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It is interesting though. Like the line is like people they hate this archetype because they've seen it too many times and like, Oh, it's always being forced down our throats or whatever. But like, I do feel like the first time Cochrane showed up, who's one of like the, I would say he's the founder of, this of the archetype. archetype. Yeah. Him and Spencer. I feel like he was hated basically from the get go. So I don't think it's necessarily just on fatigue. I think there's something about it that like, yeah. Cause also these archetypes, like they're me and Cochrane and Spencer and Ryan and you know, whoever else are, hated by like the hardcore fans who make up mm-hmm. like 0.01% of survivor fans. Right. But like I'm I'm very well liked out, you know, by most people who like survivor. Same with Cochrane and same with Spencer and I can't say for Ryan. I don't know about Ryan. I haven't I again, but now haven't been testing those waters. But uh yeah, it's it's very interesting how all these things shake out. That's true. I I wonder if I wonder if maybe that's part of it like it's like, a bit of like hating Rupert, liked... like because yeah, like they are exactly. enjoyed by the casuals. And if right. you know you were the the real fan, you define yourself knowing what's true, and the casuals don't know what's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. All right. Well, uh, is is there anything else you wanted to uh, to bring up before we wrap up? Oh gosh, I don't know. Is uh, hating on the people who listen to this podcast a good way to end it? <laughs> <laughs> um i i think so uh, yeah. yeah you know uh fuck you thanks for listening yeah. <laughs> bye bye book <laughs> no a- anybody anybody that listens to this podcast is is a nice person and if you're not a nice person then stop listening bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah my parents gonna come and spank you yeah <laughs> Oh man, uh, I don't know. I feel like that. That I'm gonna get some tweets about that. Um, <laughs> Sorry, you can send send them to me. Yeah, I'll deal with that. I'll talk to my therapist about it. Survivor <laughs> fans good. are invading my Twitter again. <laughs> I just rebuilt my self esteem, and they're back. <laughs> they're talking about spanking people. I just... um, all right. Uh, so thank you, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I hope that this is not the death nail in your podcast career because this has been all over the place. <laughs> that, I feel like that's pretty pretty par for the course. You right, know, some good. of them are more you know focused, but uh, I feel like the unfocused ones. I feel like sometimes even better than the focused ones. Yeah, you know, typically I try to come in prepared. Like I did a wiggle room a few weeks ago, and I'd spent so much goddamn time thinking about it because I didn't want to talk about strategy so I like prepared other things to talk about and then I went and listened back to myself as I sort of rattled off this thesis I had written for no reason about survivor themes <laughs> and storytelling and I was like oh my god chill out you sound like such an asshole <laughs> who wants to listen to this yeah so I, I came in with nothing that's, and, that's uh, the best way it, to come in read. yeah well I, I feel like when people come in with things prepared that's usually the worst that's the, that's the most difficult podcast for me to do because like I'm like, all right, I know what you want to say, like I know what you have prepared, but like how do I get you off that script? How do I get you just like having a conversation with me? Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, you you just came ready to have the conversation. I drank I drank a, a venti iced coffee. <laughs> what was it? Well, this has been this has been so much fun, Taryn. Thank you so much for reaching out. I had a blast. This is great.
Yes, thank you so much. Uh, how can people uh, find you if they want to ask you about spanking? Uh, oh, I, spanking is my favorite question. So please, <laughs> you can tweet at me at Zekerchief, Z-E-K-E-R-C-H-I-E-F. Uh, and that's Twitter, that's Instagram, and it is also my website. And you can also, if you want to email me, it's Zekerchief at Gmail. So holler at me any way you want. Uh, is there any way people can uh, like search for you to to look at for your uh, your storytelling performances? I'd say just follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm I'm not performing between now and the end of the year, but in January, I well, yeah, I'll probably I'll probably be up and at it again. Awesome, yeah. If I, if I'm uh, if I ever make it out to LA again, I'll, yeah, uh, come hang out with me. I'll ask. Yeah, I'd I'd love to check it out. It sounds uh, it sounds fun. Um, all right, cool. Uh, so. If you want to subscribe to this podcast, you can find me on iTunes, uh, The Taran Show. It's T-A-R-A-N. Uh, you can also find me on robhasawebsite.com slash Taran Show. Um, and uh, Twitter, Armstrong Taran. And uh, make sure you go to uh, harrys.com slash Taran to get $5 off your Harry's purchase. Yeah. yeah. Shave your pubes, kids. Get a new razor. <laughs> yeah. If you want, if you want to be like Zeke and have a cool mustache, you need to be able to know, like, you got to have proper shaving equipment. There you go. You got to be able to shave yeah. around it. Exactly. <laughs> With the nice, cool, comfortable, yeah. smooth shaving of I Harry's. Have, I have a Harry's razor. Oh, do you? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. I And I'm, I'm sure you love it completely. Oh, it's the best razor I've ever had. Uh, nothing, there you go, nothing, guys. Nothing, you know, because it has both all of, like, the functionality of a Gillette razor without paying a bajillion dollars for all the Gillette razor blades. Yeah, and they send it right to your house. It's perfect. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Zeke, for coming on. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I will see you next time. Terrence asking questions. Terrence finding out. Terrence looking deeper. That's what it's all about. It's the Terrence Show. So you